DIY and How Studios presents Real Rock with Andy King, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hey folks, Christian Swain here. I'd like to talk a bit about our project and about you. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project is currently four podcasts. Our main show, we think of it as a Rock and Roll 101, we will eventually do about 30 of these scripted, carefully researched audio documentaries. And we have the Rock and Roll Librarian, where Shelley Sorensen and I have lively, fun discussions about books that rock. The discussions continue with Rock Talk, a weekly survey of rock and roll news with my co-host, Peter Ferrioli. And we just rolled out Deeper Digs in Rock, single topic shows, interviews, and field trips. All we want to do now is more of it more often. And that's where you come in. Our shows will always be free. That's our promise to you. If you truly enjoy it, if you can't wait for that next episode, well, won't you please make a modest monthly donation via Patreon. Just click the Patreon link right at the top of our webpage, rockandrollarchaeology.com, and take it from there. Thank you, and keep up the rockin'. Welcome to Real Rock. I'm your host, Andy King, and today we'll be discussing the 1991 Oliver Stone-directed biopic, The Doors, starring Val Kilmer, Meg Ryan, and Billy Idol. That can't be right. Yeah, sure. I will be going into full detail about the film, so consider this your spoiler warning. The film is available on Amazon Prime and Hulu. Go watch this, come back for our discussion. Some of the questions we will be answering today are, Would Jim's romantic prowess work on a millennial? Seriously, how is Meg Ryan this void of personality? And are the doors time travelers? Yes. In this show, I will be providing proof that Oliver Stone believes the doors themselves our time travelers. Yes, I do have proof. Mr. Morrison, you've gone too far. You're a poet, not a rock star. What you gonna do for Act Three? say I was testing the bounds of reality. Oliver Stone is obviously a Doors fan. His filmography is rife with poetic illusions of death and visceral imagery much like a Doors record. In fact, when Stone wrote his first draft of Platoon, he sent it to Jim Morrison in the hopes that Morrison would play Chris, the role made famous by Charlie Sheen in 1986. A copy of the script was found in the effects of Morrison after he is said to have died in Paris. It's obvious while watching the film that Stone is not only a super fan of The Doors, but also a super fan of the mythology of Jim Morrison. <laughs> hey! I'm the Lizard King! I can do anything! Come on, raise your hands if you understand! Take a pull! How many people know you're alive? Bullshit! Plastic soldiers 
Stone takes on a daunting task in this movie. Portray Morrison as a larger-than-life Dionysian shaman while also showing the dark side of fame and excess. But does he succeed? Hollywood had been trying to make this movie for quite a while before Stone was selected. In 1985, Columbia Pictures first acquired the rights to make the film from the surviving doors. Robbie Krieger, John Densmore, and Ray Manzarek, and the Morrison family. Two scripts were written and rejected when Imagine Entertainment replaced Columbia. Producer Sasha Harari contacted Stone, who met with the doors and was originally rejected by them for wanting to include Caligula-esque orgy scenes. By 1989, Carolco Pictures acquired the rights, and they too wanted Stone to direct. By this time, Platoon had come out, and the the Doors were impressed by the Vietnam exploration epic, so they agreed to the director and okayed the film. Even beyond the development hell this picture had already been through, Stone's toughest negotiations came from the family of Pamela Corson, Jim's longtime, long-suffering girlfriend. The Corsons were deeply concerned that their daughter would be portrayed as anything but a, quote, angel, end quote, although one has to wonder, had the Morrisons had a similar caveat, could this movie have even been made? As Stone was writing the script, he picked songs he wanted to use and wrote scenes around the soundtrack. Like I said, he is a Doors fan. Originally, he wanted Paula Abdul to choreograph the concert scenes, but she dropped out due to not understanding Morrison's moves and an unfamiliarity with the time period. It is my personal theory that she dropped out due to the absence of MC Scat Cat from the film, but luckily she found work for the animated feline in her Opposites Attract video, also known as the reason the 90s needed Nirvana. Abdul did, however, recommend the Landrums, who watched hours of concert footage to fully capture the insanity of a Jim Morrison performance. I must repeat that. They watched hours of Doors concerts. Some people have all the luck. The movie will begin in five moments, the mindless voice announced. All those unseated will await the next show. We filed slowly, languidly into the hall. The auditorium was vast and silent. As we seated and were darkened, the voice continued. The program for this evening is not new. You have seen this entertainment through and through. You've seen your birth, your life and death. You might recall all of the rest. Did you have a good world when you died? Enough to base a movie on? The film opens with Jim at the studio preparing to read through what will become American Prayer. In this scene is a blink and you miss him cameo of John Densmore as the producer. The film then cuts to the infamous crash of the Indians on the highway. We then cut to Jim hitchhiking in 1965 and then to a film class where we meet Ray Manzarek for the first time, played here by Kyle MacLaughlin. Then we get a scene of Jim reading Ray some poetry on the beach, and they decide to form a band. The two are joined by Robbie Krieger, played by Frank Whaley, and John Densmore, played by Kevin Dillon. Robbie and John actually worked with the actors to teach them how to successfully pantomime playing the instruments. We then get a scene of a rehearsal where they are practicing Break On Through. Then we see Krieger introduce us to Light My Fire. Interestingly, Krieger demanded that this scene be in the film, and all the previous scripts had this scene in it. He wants the world to know he wrote Light My Fire, and good for him. A minor, F sharp.
You know that it would be untrue You know that I would be a liar If I was to say to you Girl, we couldn't get much higher Come on, baby, light my fire G-A-D Try to set the night on fire That's great, Robbie. You got some nice changes in there. Any more lyrics? Yeah, yeah, some. I call it light my fire. Fair if I'm gonna compete with your stuff, it better be about earth, snakes, or fire. So. <laughs> the band then plays some shows on the strip, get high in the desert, kicked out of a club, and offered a deal from Electra Records. After that, we are sent to New York, and the boys are kicked off the Ed Sullivan Show for singing the line, Girl, we couldn't get much higher. Well, I have one little thing to bring up. It's a small thing, but it's important. The guys at Network have told us that they have a little problem with one of your lyrics, the lyric, girl, we couldn't get much higher. See, because you can't say higher on Network, so they asked if you could say instead, girl, we can't get much better. Can you dig that? How about, uh, girl, you couldn't bite my wire? Later in the film, as the band is fielding press questions, we are introduced to Patricia Keneally, here played by Kathleen Quinlan. The character that Quinlan plays here is a composite of various people, and Stone himself regretted not using a fake name for the character. Now that we have been introduced to all the main characters, the film goes into various scenes of concert debauchery, couple fights, more concert debauchery, and more couple fights. There is a great amount of actual Doors concert footage out there, and live, they were a band to be reckoned with. Stone decides to focus more on amplified hippie orgies and drug abuse than the sheer power of a great rock band. Biopics like this one have a huge second act problem. The writers, in this case Oliver Stone, are infatuated with the myths of the artist and rise and the fall. Pretty much 1967-1971, we are given a cobbled together mosaic of fabricated concert riots and Jim's drunken mishaps. All of this crescendos with Jim's alleged flashing of Little Jim in Miami. While on bail, he goes to Paris to focus on his poetry and passes soon after in 1971. Oh! I almost forgot. While all of this is going on, Jim keeps having a vision of an Indian representing death, wanting Jim to follow him. Who are you? I'm Jim Morrison. Cool. Who's he? A weird naked Indian. Cool. Why have you brought me here? To help you find some answers, Wayne. Answers to what? Ask me a question. Okay, two trains are traveling at 60 miles an hour, one from Chicago, one from Los Angeles. Now ask me a question about your life. Now a special note here needs to be made for Val Kilmer. Most biopic actors merely mimic the artists. Kilmer doesn't do that. He fully channels Morrison and becomes him. His portrayal took such a toll on him that he had to see a therapist for a year to break character. That's dedication to the craft. He wore special contacts to give him dilated pupils for the stone scenes, and the subtlety adds a depth to those scenes. When you see Jim singing up close, 
that's actually Kilmer. When they cut to wider shots, they use clips of Morrison himself. And honestly, you can't tell a difference. And neither could the Doors. The surviving members of the band have praised Kilmer's performance, and rightfully so. There is a lot to be said about the portrayal of Morrison in his film, but none of the negative things can be attributed to Kilmer. He's written as a drunk poser, and all that criticism goes directly to Stone. We'll let Ray Manzarek explain. The movie's jive. You know, the movie is a portrayal of Morrison as a jerk and a drunken alcoholic. You know, a jerk. I mean, I hate the guy in the movie. I wouldn't have anything to do with that guy in the movie. That's not Jim Morrison. On the flip side of the actor coin, we have Meg Ryan and her portrayal of Pamela Corson. As we stated earlier, Stone's hands were a bit tied by the Corson family, but that's not necessarily a good excuse. Stone has never been able to write more than one-dimensional women, and that's his own, perhaps subconscious, misogyny coming through. If there was an actress in 1991 to pull Pamela from the vapid portrayal that Stone had written, Ryan is not that actress. She does what she does in every movie. But the flippant, cutesy, girl-next-door thing doesn't work here. This is The Doors. Meg Ryan showed up for When Hippie Met Sally. The actors playing the rest of The Doors are fine, I guess. We really don't get to find out. The rest of The Doors are treated as background props to The Morrison Show, and that's a detriment to this film's narrative. On the plus side, watching a film like this reinforces the need we have at the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project to tell these stories. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention Billy Idol. He was originally cast as the actor Tom Baker, who in this film was played by Michael Madsen. But in 1990, before shooting commenced, Idol had a motorcycle accident that left him unable to walk. He was on crutches and recast as one of Jim's entourage. It's kind of a shame that Idol never did much acting after this. What little screen time he does get is refreshing. Still, a few questions persist with me. How does this film work as an introduction to The Doors? Also, while Jim's romantic game no doubt worked in 1965, how would it work on a millennial in 2017? I sat down with Mary Beth to find the answers to these questions. Hi, I am Mary Beth Grafsma, and I'm going to be uh, commenting on the doors today. So what familiarity did you have with the doors before we watched this movie? So, I mean, I knew some of their most famous songs, you know, like Riders on Storm. I do love that song. So, yeah, some of their most well-known songs, that's the most I ever really knew about the doors. So without knowing much about the history of the doors, how do you think the movie went about telling the story of the band? I definitely feel like this movie could have been called The Life of Jim Morrison versus just The Doors, because you definitely, it's more of about his life than I feel like the rest of the, the band themselves. I wish we could have gotten to know the rest of the story in the movie and gotten to know the rest of The Doors. I feel like it's kind of harsh that they get left out a little bit. It is. It's, it's harsh that there's not really any more spotlight, you know, on them and what they had to deal with in the midst of this. So what was your overall just thoughts about the movie itself it's uh, very trippy uh i definitely feel like i got to and this is the thing so not knowing much about jim morrison i'm not sure how accurate the movie is but from the movie's portrayal of jim morrison it sounds like he was there was never a moment where you know he wasn't really high or drunk or anything like that you know kind of just coasting along <laughs> scene by scene he was with his friends loved making music um there's almost a simplicity i think that was nice about the movie um your brain didn't have to think too hard <laughs> even though i actually like certain movies where your brain really thinks hard you know and has to analyze certain details yeah i mean it was i, I guess it's um it's a relaxing movie 
so I think that's one thing that's uh, that was nice about it. But um, I can't say this was like my favorite movie and that I would ever watch it again. I know you had mentioned in the pre-interview about uh, Stalker Jim. <laughs> okay, I was honestly, when I was watching the movie, I was really surprised by that. Because I was like, she just totally didn't even question. He like, yeah, went up to where she lived and totally just kissed her total stranger and she was like oh wow i'm totally i'm you know marveled by him and no like who are you why have you been stalking me why do you know where i live and then comes into her bedroom later i really don't understand that and if that were me i'd be creeped out just personally speaking maybe some people like that maybe it's the uh the fun the spontaneity of it but personally i was like yeah i'm not really not really feeling that so i'm guessing a guy asking you to go to the top of a roof that he's staying on and read some poetry that wouldn't be a successful romantic venture well it depends is does he have a home below the roof because if that's the case then yes that is very romantic and i like i think that's a great idea but yeah the roof is your home good i feel about that (laughs) well at least he's a good poet So the one thing about Jim Morrison and his poetry and the way, again, it was portrayed from the movie, not knowing anything really about him before. (laughs) I mean, I think people hear him. They're like, oh, wow, he's so profound. But if you really dissect the words that he's saying, I could write that. I mean, this desk, the wood that intertwines it with the knobs and how the drawers are like our souls and they fill with papers of the wind of the tree that comes back to the desk and it's all one and we're one. And it's, I mean, you could take any inanimate object and make it a Jim Morrison poem. And I'm just, that's just my take on it. And that's what I felt like. There are quite a few times in this movie where Jim says something almost nonsensical and people just stare at him like, oh my God, you just blew my mind. Um, I mean, who knows if they were on the same thing and that's why they had that same reaction because they're all like, whoa, this is amazing, you know, but you see the beginning of the movie with the Cherokee and he's looking out the back door of the car and he sees him laying on the ground, you know, obviously he's been killed and you see that same Cherokee throughout the movie follow him, you know, like in certain visions, especially when he's on something and you wonder if that one incident, did it really affect him throughout a lot of his life and maybe that's the reason why I, I don't know that he is feeling darker and um it really seemed to affect him and he's in a way he's trying to escape and that's why he's always constantly on something because he i think he he got a taste of what reality is and and what life can be and how hurtful it can be so he's like i don't ever really want to experience life that way so i'm going to experience life a different way which is why he was like never sober when it was like that's just a, that's a thought that i had a wonder if maybe why he was that way maybe a little insight you know i think he did he wanted and he almost wanted to relate to the people that have been through a lot within their lives and wanted to show that you know oh i've been through a lot too even in that interview with patricia where he mentioned that his parents died in a car crash and obviously you come to find out that wasn't the case to make him seem more dramatic and relatable and a darker soul that's a really good point that kind of shows up a lot themes of darkness and and sadness which honestly that's what i love about the doors was you know in the middle of the summer of love they were just like death still exists and I kind of I kind of dig that. What did you think of the performance of Val Kilmer as Jim Morrison? Val Kilmer did he did an amazing job. I didn't I haven't seen him really in many things at all, many movies until this one. And 
I was very impressed. I mean, even not knowing who Jim was again, going into the movie, he seemed to just hit it spot on. I mean, after even watching this movie, I looked at pictures of the actual band members. They did a great job of matching up the band members um, or the actors in the movie to the band members and what they look like and their personas. And I mean, I think they did a great job or with the actor choices. So after seeing the concert reenactment, if we are given a time machine, how likely would you be to uh, actually go to a Doors concert? Me personally, if I had to go back in time, I would not go to the Doors concert concerts were held the way they acted on stage the people there no i would definitely not attend the doors here's a fun fact oliver stone based the concert scenes on the orgy scene from the 1956 movie the ten commandments (sighs) well i learned something new today fucking millennials now on with the conspiracy the final frame of the movie says jim morrison is said to have died Now many take this as a hint that Stone believes that Jim faked his own death, but Stone left so many clues to the time-traveling doors theory that I have yet to see anyone else comment on. Here are just a few. During a rehearsal in 1965, Robbie Krieger somehow plays the 1975 Pink Floyd song Wish You Were Here. Okay, maybe he's just playing an E minor scale, but in 1971, Morrison is on a ledge and we clearly see a billboard for the 1990 movie Another 48 Hours. Also, Jim is drinking Miller Genuine Draft in the bar scene and those weren't available until the late 80s. We are through the looking glass here, people! Either the doors were Time Lords or this movie had a terrible continuity editor. I'm gonna stick with the Time Lord theory. Roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. This movie is riddled with flaws, but it's not terrible. For its faults, it is still a good movie, just not a great one. I think I'll let John Densmore review it for me today. Val Kilmer should have got an Oscar nomination. I did say, Oliver, I don't remember the naked girls running on stage. I I, I probably would have stopped drumming and, I don't know, started dancing or something. (laughs) Oliver made a great impressionistic painting of our career. Yeah, I, I, it's Amy Madigan, wonderful actress, married to, um, oh my God, Ed Harris, s- said to me, John, you gotta, when they were shooting, she heard about, and I met her at a party, she said, you gotta relax here, they're gonna take six years and cram it into two hours and blow it up the size of a building, it ain't gonna be, just, it's gonna be an impression. And it was a beautiful impression. The current Rotten Tomatoes score is 54%, and that may be a bit low. The official Real Rock rating is 3 out of 5. As a supplement to this film, I highly recommend the documentary When You're Strange for a more complete look at the history of The Doors. Links to everything referenced, including MC Scat Cat, are in the show notes. I'm Andy King, and this has been Real Rock. This is the end, my only friend. Of our elaborate plans, the end of everything that stands, the end. No safety goes the end. I'll never look again to your eyes again. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? 
Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Re-Rock is produced by DIY and House Studios and is a part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Re-Rock is written by Andy King. All commentary and opinions are that of the host. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Playlists can be found at Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rockandrollarchaeology.com for more information.